We can think about rights to repair as also being rights to have autonomy, to have autonomy over how the things that are around us are actually working, our autonomy to make decisions about if we're going to modify them or if they break and we want to fix them, the autonomy to be able to fix them with our own intelligence or to develop our own capacities to do that. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. The design of technology has deep consequences for our use of products and services. Alison Powell is an academic looking at how people's values influence the creation of tech and how, in turn, our life is shaped by technology. In today's episode, Ugo Valari from the Restart Project and I interview Alison at the London School of Economics, where we discuss the links between design, innovation and our right to repair. We also focus on the rise of connected devices, the growing shift to service models, and the impact of these changes to our rights and to the repair economy. My name is Alison Powell. I work in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. I'm an assistant professor. I run a master's program called Data and Society, and I'm generally interested in the design of technology and its consequences for social life. I've always been really interested in both the stories we tell about our world and the way we make it. My work is kind of interested in the intersection of those things. So let's say you want to make a society. You have to make some rules for your society. You have to tell stories about your society but you also have to build the foundations that you are going to put your society on. And one of those foundations is how are you going to communicate to each other? And so I study processes of communication and the technologies that make them happen. Why did you decide to study those areas? I don't know. I'm kind of like a geeky person by temperament. I started out studying literature. Then I took a course in the engineering department that was called Science and Technology Studies. And I'd been reading all these books, sort of narratives about how people get together, like love stories. I don't know, all the good stuff that's in novels and in literature. And then I encountered this field of research that looked at the technical world and tried to understand how the same kinds of things that motivated people to like write stories about relationships motivated people to build technologies to do different things. So I was really interested and intrigued by stories about the development of the bicycle, for example, where there was a big fight about what a bicycle was. There was one set of people who thought bicycles were for racing and going really fast and being really masculine. And then there was another set of people who thought the bicycles were for freedom, for getting around, for women maybe to like be able to exercise a little more autonomy. And I was totally fascinated with this idea that technologies also had stories in them. They also had social conflicts in them. And they also had places where people were trying to work out their disputes. And that those presented not just in how we talk about technologies, but how they get built. So for example, we we actually ended up with the safety bicycle, which was more associated with liberation, with getting people safely where they wanted to go, than the kind of more masculine bicycle, which is what we now think of as the penny farthing with the great big wheel in the front, which was more used for racing. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how you ended up looking at connected devices and how 
you're currently working in this area? So I currently work on a project called Virtue, which looks at the ethics around the design of connected devices. This is a European-funded Horizon 2020 project, and we're really interested in how people make decisions about building connected devices. So we do lots of interviews with small companies, startups, some sort of meetup groups who are interested in Internet of Things and connected devices. And my interest in connected devices has come from my long work in open hardware movements and in open software movements. Because just like the story about the debate about the bicycles, we've always had a debate about communication technologies as well. Should these be things that are open to people being able to use and transform? Or should we go with the kind of more standard innovation narrative of let's make things that are better, newer, faster, and that maybe people don't have quite as much control and autonomy around? So I started out working on connected devices a long time ago, 10 years ago, when I was looking at how activists were trying to build wireless networking technologies in ways that would connect communities and individuals and people in cities together in different ways than the dominant telecommunications companies were doing. For me, this was a kind of question of rights. If we assume that we have a right to communicate, how shall we exercise that right? Most of the rights to communicate that we have now have been defined in policy as consumer rights, like the right to buy a particular package for your phone to get access to a network. But we could also define these communication rights differently. We could define them more in line with the way that many communication scholars define them, which is around the rights to speak, listen, and be heard, and to have a certain amount of self-determination and autonomy in those processes. So if we think about how our communication devices operate, we could also think about having a right to transform the ways that we communicate through the technologies that we are using, just like people thought about ways to transform their transport in relation to the design of their bicycles. Community mesh networking, for example, is using the networking protocols that are common in wireless technologies to connect people or entities between each other rather than going through a kind of central server. And that's a different model for thinking about how you communicate. It's much more focused on autonomy, and it's much less focused on centralized control, which we might associate with efficiency. So to connect a little bit more with what you're interested in, in terms of repair, we can think about rights to repair as also being rights to have autonomy, right? To have autonomy over how the things that are around us are actually working, our autonomy to make decisions about maybe if we're going to modify them or if they break and we want to fix them, the autonomy to be able to fix them with our own intelligence or to develop our own capacities to do that. People often question our approach to the right to repair and to owning the things that we use as being anti-innovation. And we'd like to actually talk about what do we mean with innovation? Can innovation be putting people and planet first? You might want to argue that at this point in human history, putting people and planet first is the only foundation for innovation. But there's also quite a lot of work in innovation studies, which looks at different ways that innovation occurs between the efficient 
present top-down paradigm of innovation, which has now become really information-centric, which usually focuses on control of systems or control of information about systems, right? So this is what you're talking about, people wanting to have control over the things that they own so that they can know how they work rather than being subject to a system that is defined by somebody else, where there's a major information asymmetry between the person who has a device and the entity that's controlling the device. So there is one kind of top-down innovation paradigm that says you should collect more information about all aspects of a system in order to optimize that system because that will make it more efficient. And then innovation will proceed from that because that is a good way of defining future markets because you know everything. Because in the technology field, repair and repairability is a real flashpoint for this kind of question about who gets the knowledge. In most of our mediated high-tech digital environments, there are massive information asymmetries. And you can really see them in the case of these questions about right to repair. That's what we're seeing happening, even as some minuscule progress is made at European level with initial provisions for repair brought in in legislation on eco-design of certain products starting with washing machines, dishwashers, televisions and fridges. Some minimal gains are made and yet there is this new way to differentiate who can access what. So if you're a professional repairer, you can get to a certain extent information and spare parts about repairing a product. But if you are a consumer, you wouldn't even be allowed to access repair manuals to be able to assess if a product might be repairable or not to begin with, so to be a better decision maker. And that, again, is extremely problematic because it just redefines barriers rather than dissolving them. Yeah, and if we get to other parts of the high-tech ecology, this gets more tricky as well and maybe even more problematic. We could take the case of televisions. It may be possible to repair a television, but that doesn't actually mean that you have control over how the television operates because so many televisions now are smart televisions, which means they're connected to the internet, which means that their function is dependent on automatic updates from the television provider to the television itself. This is a real challenge to repair because the function of devices, especially when they have software in them, how things work isn't necessarily to do with the mechanical or piece of computer technology you have in front of them. It's to do with a whole set of software updates that are happening often remotely, and that are changing the way that your device functions. I read recently that the reason that most people replace their mobile phones is not because the mobile phone hardware is broken. It's because the firmware inside the mobile phone doesn't work anymore. And I would really like to talk a little more about this because to me, this is where this information asymmetry comes out really clearly. What does repairing mean? Does it mean being able to know how your device functions? Being able to repair mechanically or electronically a product is meaningless if meanwhile access to software support or software obsolescence kicks in. I think in discussing what rights to repair is just the right to be able to use a product for as long as we see fit, including having access to software updates and control over problematic aspects of that software. Thank <laughs> you.
I wonder whether in your work on connected devices specifically, you see additional issues and potentially solutions to this dichotomy that is not really particularly helpful. It's quite frustrating, in fact. What I've seen is a kind of collapse of what we would call software and what we've called hardware, right? So there is a collapse of things together. Our connected devices aren't just electronics devices. They are primarily computational devices. Because they are connected together and because they relate to each other, changing the way that they connect or changing the back end changes quite a lot in the function of the device. So in some of the work that we've done, we've seen connected device developers become really worried about life cycle and responsibility. It hasn't come out from the developers so much in relation to repair, but they're very concerned about responsibility over a life cycle. And I think there are some opportunities to try to define how long a device should function and perhaps to have connected device lifespan specified. The way this plays out is that let's say you decide to make a set of connected devices and they all relate to one central server and you decide to sell on your business model. There should be a guarantee to all of the people who have bought the devices that even if you sell on the back end that makes them work, that they need to be able to work for at least a minimum standard lifespan. And I think this is, again, a very minimal gain that could be made. But this is a minimal gain to just ensure that a connected device will work for as long as you want it to work. And we did a lot of work in the Virtue Project with a project called the Open IoT Mark. And this project, I think it's kind of in transition at the moment because there have been a lot of projects seeking to make open IoT standards and frameworks. But what I found really interesting in the participatory process of finding out about how people would want to sign up to this open mark is that there was a certain openness on the part of developers to have this lifespan provision and also to have a kind of general open description of how a connected device works. The problem is, of course, you don't want to open up too much in a connected device because there are major concerns for security. And I think you talked to Ross Anderson about this. And I think this is like very, very tricky area. And I'm not a security researcher. So my concerns are more, how can we have a balance between having systems that are relatively secure? Most connected systems are very insecure and still have some provision for people to understand how their devices are operating and to have a guarantee that for a certain amount of time, they will operate as expected. You came up with a term for auditability of such systems. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that? Under what conditions might it be possible to audit the changes to firmware and to go back to a company and say, this kind of change is way out of line with the kind of device that I thought that I purchased. It's making it work completely differently. I don't want it to work that way anymore. Not just my keyboard doesn't work the way I expected, but your firmware update now opens up the GPS channel. So I'm broadcasting my GPS everywhere. This is a hypothetical example, but I'm sure that there are practical ones we could find. 
This does not let you repair your device, but it lets you call out changes to the function of your device, which when we think about rights, is a sort of parallel experience. It's an exercise of autonomy. In your work on open communities in the open hardware and open source software, have you come across examples of how communities can contribute to bring about auditability and more regaining control over the products that we use. The Open IoT Mark project was very similar to a set of projects that I saw in the open hardware movement where people were trying to make it clear when something was open hardware and how you could find out about it being open hardware. So open hardware, of course, is computer or electronic technology that's based on open standards or where you can actually look at the schematics. This is great for people who understand how to read schematics, not great for anybody else. But it does get to this principle of auditability. So there were a lot of proposals for ways to actually look at how electronics worked. There were also projects like the online repositories that gather up repair manuals that I think most of your listeners will be familiar with. These are all kind of similar efforts in some ways. They're sort of bottom-up efforts to create the capacity to see how things work. You could also do some automated software updates that would provide some level of consumer view, you get pop-ups saying your software has been updated. There's probably a very easy opportunity for an extra layer to be added to that. This software update doesn't just do this and this, optimize this, but this software update changes the function in this way or this way or this way. The question I have about auditability, having now done this work, is what is meant to be the response to the audit? This is the part that is more challenging. If you look at Android smartphones, where there is a gigantic fragmentation of software, lack of support, and multiple devices, it gets extremely complicated. Also because once a software update or a firmware update has been applied, you have no way to unapply it, to go back, unless you are a complete geek and you will root your device and know exactly what you're doing. But that's extremely hard for most people to even understand what it means. And so how can we reconcile this multiplication of devices that manufacturers keep putting out there and the lack of intelligible ways to audit for normal people and our rights to reject it or even go back to what the device used to do until the day before. I think that there just needs to be more continual pressure from people about their desire to go back, right? So maybe one of the rights to repair could be a right to revert. There also could be more advocacy on connecting up these kinds of things, like people wanting to reverse a software update or people wanting to understand how and why an update was made and connecting these to other kinds of rights that are already established so that the experiments we're doing with how can you roll back a model will have a consumer push behind them. Everything becomes even more complicated when you connect this with the change in ownership models where a lot of these products, you're not necessarily necessarily owning them to begin with, but you pay in order to access a service and 
So by design, the agreement is such that you're not allowed or supposed even to know how it works or to tinker with it or to physically own it forever. How can we reconcile this in a changing landscape for ownership? This is a huge challenge. The kind of service-based model, not just for software, but for all kinds of other things, creates a certain kind of efficiency, but it also removes that autonomy we were talking about. So if you are in a service contract, it's very hard to repair something. It's very hard to take ownership of something. It's very hard to claim that you should understand how the service works because it's not part of the service contract. So maybe there are some spaces here for some regulatory change or some push to changes in regulations to extend consumer rights to knowledge and understanding into the service economy. This also connects with finding the right balance between security and your own rights to own and tinker and repair. And obviously, as more and more services and products are connected, we're always told that it's because of lack of sufficient security that we can't be fully in control or simply not even fully aware of how a product or a system works. How do we find the right way to address these concerns, but without using them as scaremongering techniques to have zero control over the products and services we use? I need to preface my remarks in this area by saying that I'm not a security researcher. So I will speak from my own expertise as someone who's more interested in the experience side. My understanding of the balance here is that you need to have a certain amount of control in order to ensure security. However, I also understand that you need to have a certain amount of openness in order to be very sure of the potential risks to security. A completely closed system might have an undisclosed bug in it that is extremely dangerous. So there is always within the open source community been an argument for some amount of openness facilitating a greater understanding of systems vulnerabilities. So some openness can be good for security, but it's a fact that vulnerabilities are exploited and that you may not want to leave absolutely everything open all the time. So this is a really delicate balance. And there's physical security, and then there's information security. And there are so many breaches of information security at the moment that there is now this excuse that we can't have any openness or repairability or scrutability on systems because they're so fragile. But I think it should be possible to have some balance. And it should be possible to have a level of security that also permits some understanding of the function of a system from a consumer perspective. You can't say nobody gets to know about how systems are going to work because otherwise they will be insecure. The current imbalance, particularly as we get to more miniaturized and connected devices, is also posing a threat to the repair economy as a whole. And ultimately the idea that don't worry if a device fails, the service provider will just want you to have another device. They don't want back the one that failed. They want you to throw it away and keep consuming as fast as possible while threatening the repair economy, which we desperately need to keep our communities vibrant. Can we articulate these needs using respect for the planet as a way 
forward in these conversations. The amount of e-waste produced by formerly connected mobile devices is astonishing. This is a classic failure of imagination. This is a linear, constant consumption business model running up against the end of the availability of resources to produce it. For mobile devices and connected devices, if the business model is already to sell a service, that is already the business model. There should be no reason to exchange and replace functioning electronic devices. There should be ways to maintain those devices in service and to provide backwards compatibility with previous operating systems. If the model is going to be software as a service, connectivity as a service, there should be no connection between the physical device and the continued service. So there needs to be much more creativity in making smartphones backwards compatible, for example, in making service plans function on older electronics models and planned obsolescence really should not be part of the model for provision of communications access. The question becomes, who pays for ensuring that this backwards compatibility is indeed ensured in an economy that is currently very biased towards supporting the launch of next year's product. So maybe this is an opportunity. What if we became a bit more creative about provision of access and connection between new software-based or communication services and previous generations of electronics, not only repairing the electronics, but thinking about a repair economy that adds on to existing services by making them backwards compatible with older models of phones so that you could buy a new contract but then pay a small subscription fee to a company that would ensure that your new contract and your new 4G access works on your previous mobile phone. This is hypothetical, but this is an economic space that could be occupied. You mentioned the case of televisions earlier, and that's a typical case where there is bloatware, additional software that you didn't really buy when you bought that TV. And we read recent cases of an app that was interfering with a TV whenever the user was switching on that TV, making it impossible to use the TV normally. And that person never installed it and cannot get rid of it because of an agreement between Samsung and that company to have it on on the device. So there is not just a planned obsolescence, but there is obsolescence that is linked to other people's decisions on what software they impose on us. This seems to connect with the right to have your product function as you expected it to function at purchase. And these are a bundle of consumer rights that I feel would have very strong support from many areas. These ones seem like easy ones in some ways, not because it would be easy to get companies to change their business models, but because it is easy for people to articulate the damage that this does to their exercise of these consumer rights. So if your television doesn't function at all because it has having an interaction with some unnecessarily installed software, then these things need to be publicized, discussed, and connected with other examples so that it's clear that there's a pattern that isn't in line with what the companies are actually selling to people. If you cannot 
fix that problem, there is no point in being able to even repair the screen because it wouldn't be usable anyway. Another final example of this difficult balance to, to be struck is a recent example by Apple that came up with the latest generation of its own computers with this additional chip, the T2 chip, that on the one hand is a very innovative approach to bringing the smartphone level security into the computer, but on the other hand could easily disable any machine that was repaired by a non-authorized person. And it's not happened yet, but the kill switch is embedded as part of this chip. How do we come up with a narrative that helps us navigate through this Issues. These are, again, kind of security features that have secondary capacities to maintain information asymmetries, to go back to how I was talking about this again. The kill switch allows Apple to control the information about how to repair its devices and, of course, then control the market for repairing them. I think that the pushback here has to be we want the security, but we don't want the cost of the security and to work out what the company understands to be the risk to its own model, to have people refuse to buy its products or to repair them anyway, file a class action suit if they've repaired them in a third party way, maintaining focus on where the actual problems are rather than saying, oh, Apple shouldn't put in these extra chips. The focus should be on Apple shouldn't use the installation of these chips as an excuse to hold more information and more power than it should. Finally, in looking at your work with designers of connected products, do you see a promising future for fighting back this information asymmetries so that we don't have to choose between access to information and auditability. The challenges in creating support structures and business models that fulfill both what developers want and what consumers want. Focus on long-term rights. Focus on rights to understanding. Focus on places where people can exercise autonomy. And focus on transforming industries to provide support to developers who want to work in a different market and create a different market. We spent a long time talking about, well, what are we going to do about what's happening in the market right now, the way it's currently structured? We need to be a little bit more creative because we need to equip the people who would like to build open systems and who would like to establish a guarantee to their consumers that their system will function well over time, who would like to create more auditable systems, need to make spaces for those people to succeed. And that actually means transforming the current market. As we navigate our way through the design of our technological futures, it's important to think about our rights to information and autonomy, to knowing how these things work how they can be modified and how they are deeply linked to our right to repair our stuff and to our right to access the information and resources needed for us to do so. If we focus on these areas, it will help us to break the information asymmetry of the products currently on the market. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. 
As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Isabel, who did the research and planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.